But today we are in Ezra chapter 7. So find your place there this morning. And um, this is the third sermon that we have done in this series uh, through the wonderful Old Testament book of Ezra, which chronicles for us the story of God's people, the Jews, leaving the 70 years of Babylonian captivity and making their way back to the homeland, the city of Jerusalem. In chapter number one, you'll remember that the Persian king Cyrus, he issued an edict and a decree and order, and he said that the Jews were now allowed to leave Persia. They had conquered the Babylonians, and the Medes and the Persians were now reigning, and they allowed these Jews to return. So in chapter one and chapter two, in a message that I preached a few weeks ago called Coming Home, We saw some 50,000 Jewish people begin to make their way back into the promised land. Chapter 2 gives us the family names of many of those people who returned. Then in chapter 3, 4, and 5, we looked at that last Sunday morning in a message entitled Starting Over. As they came back to their homeland, there was a lot of work that they had to do to begin to rebuild the uh, city of Jerusalem. The work on the altar was performed. The work on the temple was performed under the leadership of a man by the name of Zerubbabel. In fact, there were three distinct waves of Jews over a period of many, many years that left Persia and they came back to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel left the first wave and he built the temple. Nehemiah led the last wave and he built the wall. Today we're going to look at the second wave, and that is led by Ezra, and he built the people. So today we're going to look at this message entitled, Building Lives. Building Lives, and I trust that it'll be a way that we can look into the Scripture to see how God would use us as His people to help build into the lives of other people God's truth. So that brings us up all the way to the end of chapter 6. And if you will look in chapter 6, verse 15... The Bible tells us that finally, after years of work, years of delay, in fact, due to opposition, the Scripture tells us that the building of the Jewish temple was delayed some 18 years. They finally got back on track, and verse number 15 of chapter 6 says, And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So Zerubbabel leads them back in this first wave. They build the temple. They rebuild the altar. Passover is constituted. The uh, temple priests are put back into place. And all of the aspects of the Old Testament Jewish worship were now beginning to be laid back down one right after the other. When you move from chapter 6 to come to chapter 7, there is roughly a 60-year time span that transpires between chapter 6 and chapter 7. And, uh, and as you move into chapter 7 and you begin to see this man named Ezra come on the scene to lead the second wave of returning exiles. In verse number 1 of chapter 7, the Bible says, now after these things, that is all the historical background I just gave you, All of what happened in chapters 1 through 6, plus it is much, much more than what is just mentioned in these opening chapters. For example, woven into the scene here is also the scene of Queen Esther in the book of Esther, but we don't have time to go into that this morning. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, after all of these things had transpired, you will notice in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, here comes the man who is the author of this book, 
He comes on the scene, and his name is Ezra. All right, so King Cyrus is long gone. He's the one that said that the, that the Jews could leave in the first wave. He's long gone. Now the guy who sits on the throne is a guy by the name of Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes is going to allow, just as Cyrus did, the second wave of Jews to return. But as Ezra steps to the forefront, this is the first time that you see him mentioned in the Scriptures. You will note it gives us his family tree, if you will, in verses 1 through 5. Tells us a little bit about his ancestry. And then in verse 6 it says, This Ezra went up from Babylon. That is, he left this 70 years of captivity. He travels about a thousand miles, and he's going up to the city of Jerusalem. When you read the Bible and you find pilgrims headed toward Jerusalem, the Scripture always says they are going up to Jerusalem. Never down, but you're always going up to Jerusalem. In fact, just the opposite is true when you read about, say, for example, Egypt. They go down to Egypt. It's not just a picture of geographically moving north to south, but it is a deeper picture of a spiritual walk in a person's life. We're either moving up toward the Lord or away from the Lord. And when you say they're going up to Jerusalem, it was a euphemism for saying that they were headed toward Christ or toward the Lord in their spiritual walk as well as the actual physical city of Jerusalem. Now, we know very little about the man Ezra. Uh, we know, as I pointed out to you in the last couple of sermons in this series, we know that he chronicled the book of Chronicles. He was the author of that. He was the author of the book we're reading, Ezra, this morning. He was the author of Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm uh, in the book of Psalms, uh, uh, 150 verses, if my memory serves me correctly. He authored that but what is, what is interesting is, is he didn't live very long. Uh, he was born in 480 B.C. He died in 440 B.C. So here was a man who was only 40 years old. But my goodness, he accomplished a lot in the four short decades in which he was alive. If you trace his genealogy, you'll note that he goes all the way back to Aaron, who was a brother of Moses, and he would belong to the lineage of the priest. So Ezra became a priest and what is known in the Scriptures as a scribe. He was a man who was responsible for, for taking the piece of parchment and copying, very meticulously copying, the Word of God over and over and over again. So he leads this second wave of returning exiles up to the city of Jerusalem. Verse 6, Ezra went up from Babylon. Now notice how it describes him. He was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all of his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Now you may want to, if you carry the King James, circle that word ready. Some translations use the word skilled. It's only used three or four times in the Bible. It's a very interesting word, and it, it literally means, it means fast. It means quick. Psalm 45 says, my tongue is a pen of a ready writer or a quick writer. It is said that Ezra was a quick copier. And that as he was transcribing the scrolls, he was very efficient. He was very meticulous as he would move through this. Listen, it's not something they would put on a mimeograph machine and copy that. It's not something they could scan. It's not something that they could print. But word by word, 
Hebrew word after Hebrew word, with every vowel point, every consonant, was meticulously written down on these pieces of parchment by the scribes. Ezra was that kind of man, and the Bible says when it came to his assignment that he was very skilled. He was very ready. He was very quick. Now, not all the scribes were like that. Jeremiah 8 says, How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? The false pen of the scribe works falsehood. He was given an indictment toward those who were sloppy in their work or who was intentionally trying to discredit or to bring error in the Word of God. But Ezra was not like that. He was highly skilled. He was quick. He was ready. He knew what the Scripture said, and he was very skillful in transcribing that. In fact, Jewish tradition says that Ezra knew the entire Old Testament law by memory, and that he could write the Old Testament law by memory. Now, that would be a man uh, that has certainly been dedicated, right? Well, here we are on Father's Day, and the, the Scripture doesn't say anything about Ezra being a dad. But it does describe for us some characteristics that are found in this man that I believe are desirable traits for any father, any dad to have in their lives. Let me point out what I believe to be the primary one. Uh, If you look in verse number 6, I want you to underline the phrase in the last part of verse 6 about Ezra where it says, the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Do you see that in verse 6? If you go down to verse number 9, you see it again. The good hand of his God was upon him. Go down to verse 28. You'll find it again. And right in the middle of verse 28, the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. Go to chapter 8. Look in verse 18. You'll find it again. And the good hand of our God is upon us. Verse 22, in the latter part of verse 22, once again, the hand of our God is upon all of them for good that seek him. Verse 31, in the middle part of verse 31, and the hand of our God was upon us. If God is going to emphasize something like that over and over, it must be very important, wouldn't you think? And certainly it is. The Bible says it about other people. It says it about Ezekiel. It says that about Daniel. It says that about David. It says that about Jesus in the New Testament. What does it mean to have God's hand upon you? Well, the first thing that I want you to note about Ezra's life is the power that was upon his life. To have God's hand upon your life means that you have the presence of God and the power of God working in your life. To have God's hand upon you means God's blessings are on your life. That God wants to live out His power in you. That he wants to live through you and he wants to manifest himself through the life that you live before other people. So it was a way of saying, in Ezra's way, he was saying that God's power is living through me. That's how I'm able to leave Babylon and move a thousand years in a, car- a thousand miles in a caravan and come to Jerusalem because God's power and God's presence is in my life. Warren Wiersbe said this. If you can explain what is going on in your life and ministry, then God didn't do it. Think about that. If you can explain what's going on in your life and ministry, then God didn't do it. He says, be sure to keep your life on a miracle basis. It is the hand of God that directs us. It is the hand of God that protects us. It is the hand of God that corrects us. And more than anything in my life, 
my desire is to have the hand of God on my life. And more than anything else in life, it's for me to see God's hand on your lives and for you to live out the presence of God in your life. One anonymous writer said, God's hand that holds the ocean's depths can hold my small affairs. His hand that guides the universe can carry all of my cares. I know of no other quality that is more vital in the lives of our fathers and all of our men and all of our men and women as far as that goes, but I know of no other quality that is needed in the lives of dads today more than having the hand of God upon your life and the presence of God in your life. Do you know, according to the United States Census Bureau, one in four children in America live in a fatherless home. One in four. Ninety percent of all runaway children, 63% of all youth suicides, 85% of all children with behavioral disorders, 80% of youth with anger problems, all come from homes where there is no dad. May God help us to be men with his hand upon us, with his presence in our lives. Ezra was that kind of a person. He had God's hand upon him, and he was able to go to these returning Jewish exiles as they leave Persia and says, come with me. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, and we're going to begin to build God's people just as Zerubbabel had built the temple. Let me show you. Go to verse number 7. The Bible says, And there went up some of the children of Israel and of the priests and the Levites, the singers, the porters, the, the Nethanims, that is the temple servants to Jerusalem, in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. We would say that the folk that he took along with him back to Jerusalem, they were the priests. They were the musicians. It was those who would lead the worship services, those who would teach the word. But he also says there were the temple servants, those who would lock and unlock the facilities, those who would clean and care for and take care of the facilities. They were all moving back to Jerusalem now to build the kingdom of God and to build people. Verse 8, he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For upon the first day of the month began he to go from Babylon. On the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God that was upon him. Now, this was not like he could hop a flight and be there in a few hours. It was a thousand-mile journey. It was a caravan that would take him somewhere between four and five long, arduous months. So he had quite a commitment. No wonder he says that the hand, the good hand of God was upon us as he traveled the, the uh, treacherous roads, as he endured all that was necessary to endure to move back from Persia into Babylon. He says he has the power of God or the presence of God upon his life. But the second thing I want you to note is not just the power on his life, but the passion in his life. If someone were to ask you, what is really your driving passion? What is your real driving passion? What do you love more than anything in life? Maybe it's golf. Maybe it's fishing. Maybe it's hunting. Maybe it's NASCAR. Um, maybe it's the beach. Maybe it's the mountains. What is it that you love more than anything in life? Ezra is going to tell us what he loved more than anything in life. And it's recorded for us in verse 10. 
Notice this. This is, in my estimation, the key verse of the chapter. And he gives us a threefold explanation for what's driving his life. Notice this. You may want to underline it. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach in Israel the statutes and the judgments. Do you see that threefold direction there for his life and passion for his life? Let's break it down for a little bit. Number one, he prepared his heart to study the Word of God. Underline that phrase there, to seek the law of the Lord's, of the Lord. Dads, we cannot lead our families God's way unless we know and understand what God's way really is. And if I could recommend a good book to you that'll help you in your own personal Bible study. Now listen, it's not a narrative. Uh, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a, 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 a book that is filled with uh, Bible stories, but it is, a, it is a practical book that'll help you in Bible study. It was written by a guy by the name of Gordon Fee. It's a number of years old now, but it's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And he talks in that book about how to identify different genres of Scripture, uh, how, to, how to move through a passage and, and to uncover its true meaning and what the Holy Spirit is saying uh, about that. But if you never have a chance to read that book, you can follow this little acronym, or excuse me, this little acrostic that I want to give you, and it may help you in some ways in your personal Bible study. Uh, I'll, use the, I'll use the acrostic here, H-E-A-R. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Under the letter H, write down the word highlight. And what I mean by that is when you're doing your own personal Bible study, what I do is I take a, a yellow jail highlighter, and I highlight in my Bible the verses, the phrases, the words that jump off the page and speak to my heart, and it just seems to make it more concrete to me in my study. Now, I know sometimes folk may feel like it is disrespectful to write in your Bible, and I understand that, but I believe it will help you go back to that and remember what the Holy Spirit was showing you and teaching you as you underline or as you highlight in your Bible. So that is the H, is highlight. E is explanation. Now there are portions of Scripture that are difficult to understand. I give you that. But if you can approach the Bible this way, it'll help you. For example, we'll just use Ezra for example. Who wrote it? Ezra. What was his subject matter that he was writing about? The, the, the Jewish exiles coming back from Babylon. Who was, his, who was his audience? It was to be given to the Jewish people. What, what was his purpose? His purpose was to come back and to begin to teach what God had said. And if you can move through a passage like that and to yourself explain what the Holy Spirit is saying, that will help you to retain what God really wants you to learn from the passage. So we, 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 as we hear it, we highlight, we explain. Let me give you the third one. That is application. Apply it to your life. Here's what I used to do early on when I, uh, uh, when I didn't know better, <laughs> all right? Um, I would open the Bible, and I would look for something in the Scripture, and I would read it, and i think, hmm, that don't mean anything to me. And I would close it, and I'd go on to something else and kind of discouraged because, because uh, I, I, I didn't really understand the context or I didn't really understand what was saying. And what I was doing, I was just looking for something that would say something to me. But actually, first of all, listen, the Bible's not about us. The Bible's about God. And when you go to the Word of God, you find God, and when you find God, He'll begin to help you understand what He's wanting from you and what He's desiring from you. We call that application from the Scriptures. That is, 
application is, how does this passage speak to me? What is the Holy Spirit saying to me through this? Let me give you six quick questions of application that you can say to yourself as you're reading a passage. Is there an example I should follow? Is there a behavior I should avoid? Is there a sin I should confess? Is there a command that I should obey? Is there a truth I should believe? Is there a promise I should claim? Let me give you those again. Or you can go back and watch it live stream later or on television. And you can pick it up there. Is there an example I should follow or a behavior I should avoid? A sin I should confess? A command I should obey? A truth I should believe? Is there a promise I should claim? Remember the acrostic here. H is highlight. E, explain. A is apply. And then R is respond. Respond means write down what God is asking you to do. So, Pastor Darrell, how do you know what he's asking? Well, look at that text again in verse 10. What was the passion in Ezra's heart? It was to study the Word. So when you move it off the page, what is the application in our lives? I want to, Lord, I want to learn to study the, the Word like Ezra was studying the Word. His desire was to do it. So, Lord, I want to live out the Word the way Ezra was wanting to live out the Word. And I want to teach the Word was the third part. Lord, I want to learn to teach your Word so I can be a blessing to other people the way Ezra was teaching the Word. That's what I mean by responding. We look at that and we see what is the Holy Spirit asking us to do. And sometimes it might not be obvious what that is. Don't get discouraged and quit. Just move on to the next one the next day. And ask God to help you with that, okay? But Ezra, he had three driving principles for his passion. He said number one was to study the Word of God. Look there in verse number 10 at the second one. That is, he says, and to do it. So number two, you can write as a subset of his passion. He prepared his heart to observe the Word. Not just study it, but to do it. We don't study the Bible to accumulate facts. We don't study the Bible just to gather information. We study the Bible to learn who God is. And as we learn that, He transforms our lives. Do you know there was a study a few years ago done from Lifeway Research that found some very, very interesting information. If a child is the first person in the household to become a Christian... There is a 3.5% probability that everybody in the family will become Christians. If the mother is the first one in the family to become a Christian, that increases to a 17% probability that everybody in the family will become a Christian. But if the dad is the first one in the family to become a Christian, that jumps, listen, to a 93% probability that everybody in the house will follow the Lord Jesus. So dads set that spiritual leadership in the family. We, we want to be like Ezra. We want to learn to study it. Not so we can keep it for ourselves. We want to learn to do it so that our children, our family, and others will see what God's Word is about as we try to live it out on a regular basis. So we set that biblical pattern. One of the, one of the most important prayers in Jewish life comes from Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema. Listen to this prayer. The Bible says, Hear, O Israel, 
the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your strength. And these words I command you today, listen, teach them to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. That was Ezra's passion, to study the Word, to live it out, and to teach it. I said in the first service this morning that to live it out doesn't mean that we live perfect lives. None of us do. We want to live a life that is reflective of what the Scriptures say, but we recognize that, that, that sometimes we fail in our attempts to live the life that God wants us to live. But we still should have that desire to strive to be more like Christ every day. If we're careless about that, the book of James writes about it. And he says, he says that, that the Bible is like a mirror. And he gives us this illustration. He said it is like a person who goes in and looks in the mirror and they look at their reflection. You know how it is when you get up in the morning and you stumble into the bathroom and you turn on the light and you look in the mirror and you think, Lord, have mercy what happened to me during the middle of the night. And if you are a lady, you begin to make all of those repairs, and you put on the makeup, and if you're a guy, you probably shave, and we do all the things that we need to do to comb our hair or whatever it is to make ourselves presentable to go out in public. Well, James says, if we hear what God has to say and we don't do it, he said it's like going in your bathroom, flipping on the light, looking in the mirror, seeing what a disaster we are, turning the light back off, and leaving the exact same way we were when we came without making any kind of repairs or asking God to help us make any repairs. He says, what good is that? We have failed in that. See, a father who leads his children, you've got to be a father, a dad, who is determined to honor God and honor God's Word. And be a good dad is to be a believing dad. And you don't lead your family in your own strength. You try to lead your family in the strength of the Lord. It goes back to Ezra's saying that the hand of God was upon me. You want to lead your family that way. And it's not just in our families. We want to work our jobs that way. We want to have our relationships that way, that in every aspect of our life that we can say the hand of God is upon me. Now, very quickly, I've got to move through this, but let me just say, if you are a, if, if you're a, a dad today, I know what it's like to sometimes to feel inadequate and that you failed or that you blew it, that you messed up. That, that you're still trying to navigate your way through parenthood, and you may be a, a dad, you may be a grandfather, you may be a great-great-grandfather, and I have discovered that every step of the way we're still learning through that. But I do want you to know that the only perfect father that there will ever be is the father that we have in heaven. That's our heavenly father. That means my dad was not perfect, and your dad was not perfect. And you are not perfect as a dad. But secondly, you will be a better dad if you will surrender your life to follow Christ, you will be a better father for that. Your family will be better for that. And thirdly, if you are a Christian, you are never alone in leading your family. The way the Native Americans train their young braves is they take a young boy, and I'd read this story some time back, a 13-year-old boy, and would blindfold him and, and, and take this young, young brave out into the woods in the middle of the night. So dark you couldn't see the hand in front of your face. And there they would take the blindfold off of that boy and they would leave him in the darkness of the night. And this one particular 13-year-old boy, as he was there in the middle of where he believed was nowhere at night, every snap of a twig he was afraid that it was an animal ready to attack. Every time the wind blew, he was afraid that he was in danger. He just had no idea what to expect. And he was terrified all through the night. But as he stood there at night shaking, 
in terror, the night soon began to give way to the break of dawn. And as the sun began to arise and, uh, and the fog was burning off of the, uh, of the landscape, he was able to see the flowers and he was able to see the trees and he was just able to see a path. And as he looked down this path, just a few yards away from him, there was the figure of a man. It was his dad who had stood there with a bow and arrow all night long. In protection of his son. That's what dads call, God calls us as dads to do for our family. And that's what your heavenly father does for you. He is always there to guard you, to guide you, and protect you. Dads, be there for your children like your heavenly father is there for you. So Ezra, in his heart, it was to study the word of God, to observe the word of God, and to teach the word of God. Zerubbabel built the temple Nehemiah built the wall. Ezra built the people. And what God asks from us is to build into our lives of our children the truths of His Word for His glory. So the power on Ezra's life, that was God's blessings, God's presence. The passion on his life, that's to study and to do and to teach the Word of God. So he comes to Jerusalem now and he begins to build people's faith teaching the Word. Let me show you a great passage, and all I'm going to do is simply read it for you this morning. Take your copy, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, if you're listening, say amen. Nehemiah chapter 8, and, and here's, here's what happens. Nehemiah chapter 8, look with me uh, in, uh, in verse number 1. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. Um, remember I told you it had been about... Um, 60 years between uh, chapter seven, uh, chapter 6 and chapter 7. Well, now you have to fast forward about another 50 or so years. And Ezra has been teaching the Word. Nehemiah comes back to the city of Jerusalem and he helps build the wall around the temple, all right? And then Ezra comes back five years after that and he takes the Bible and he begins to do a public reading of the Bible. Look at this in verse 1. All the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spoke to Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation both of men and women. And all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate. Now look at this. From morning until midday. Some translations say from daybreak until noon. Now you think my sermons are long? You ought to be grateful that I'm not an Ezra. From morning, from the break of the rising of the sun, all the way till noon, he's reading the Word of God. Notice verse uh, 3. From the morning till midday before the men and the women, and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood. It's the only time you find a pulpit in the Bible. It was a platform that was made for Ezra so he would stand. So everybody could see, not him, but they would see what he was reading. They had made this 
for this purpose, verse 4. Then if you move down to verse 5, Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was above the people. And when he opened it, look at this, reverence for God's word. All the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with the lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads. They worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Go to verse number 8. So they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. What was, what was Ezra doing? He was not only studying, but doing and now teaching the word. Helping them understand as he builds their lives. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, which is the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites that taught the people said to the people, This day is holy unto the Lord for your God. Don't cry. Don't weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Verse 10. And he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat. And drink the sweet. Now I said in the first service, that's going to be my new last verse. Uh, My last verse is Ephesians 3.8. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I would preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. But I think I like Nehemiah 10 a little bit better because I don't like bran flakes and rice cakes and kale. I like Krispy Kreme. And I like nothing but cakes. And I am going to be biblical, and I'm going to eat the fat, and I'm going to drink the sweet. All right? So, he says, eat the fat, drink the sweet. Send portions to them for who nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Neither be sorry. I love this passage. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, as he's building into the lives of these returning exiles, if you can't count on anything else in life, you can count on the joy of the Lord will be your strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. He's your strength. Go back to Ezra 7 and let's close this very, very quickly. Ezra 7, look at the closing passages, at least for our text for today, and notice what happens. Artaxerxes sends a letter to let the Jewish captives go. Verse 12, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of God, of heaven, perfect peace, and at such a time I make a decree that all of the people of Israel and of the priests and the Levites in my realm, which are minded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, he says, they can go with you. For as much as thou art sin of the king and of his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of thy God, which is in thy hand. Verse 15. He says, you can even take the silver and the gold that the king's counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose inhabitants are in Jerusalem. Now remember, Artaxerxes, he was not a believer. He didn't follow the Jewish Jehovah God. He was a pagan king. But he was so moved by what he saw in Ezra's life. He said, I'm going to let you go back to Israel, build your temple, build the people, build the wall. I'll let you go back, take the silver, take the gold from the provinces of Babylon in verse number 16, along with a free will offering to the people and to the priest, offering willingly for the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And very quickly, go all the way down to verse 27 and we'll close. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord that's at Jerusalem. He has extended mercy 
unto me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. And I was strengthened in the hand of the Lord God upon me. And I gathered together out of Israel chief men to go up with me. Ezra's power was the presence of God in his life. His passion was to study, to live out, and to teach what God had to say. And his purpose was to communicate the truth of God and to build the people. Will you be an Ezra in your family? Will you say, God, I want to be that kind of leader in my family? There was a minister who had a son named William many years ago. And William, even though he grew up in a, in a home of a minister and he was a PK, a preacher's kid, he became somewhat cynical toward the Christian faith and he did not embrace nor follow his dad's Christian faith. As he got older, his dad insisted that he would get his higher education at Moody Bible Institute, something that William really was not crazy about doing. In fact, he was so careless that he was, he was actually rejected the first go-around, and because his father um, persisted to Dr. R.A. Torrey, who was the president at the time, they allowed William to come back in and re-enroll in classes with two stipulations. Number one, that he obey all the rules at Moody Bible Institute. And number two, that he meet on a regular basis with the president, Dr. R.A. Torrey. And every time he and Dr. Torrey met, William and Dr. Torrey, William would ask questions and searching questions and things that he didn't understand. And Dr. Torrey would help him and he would under, help him understand and he would teach him the value of believing what God has to say and trusting that into your life. And one day, this young man, William, came into R.A. Torrey's office, and he had an entirely different look on his face. He was no longer angry. He was no longer cynical. He was no longer bitter. But he had prayed to ask Jesus Christ to come into his life, and God had wonderfully and gloriously changed his life. And you've probably never heard of a young man named William Newell, but that's, who, that's his name. But I would say you probably heard of many of the songs that he wrote, especially one of them that says this, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free, pardon there was multiplied to me, there my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. He would go on to write, by God's word, at last, my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned, till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. Mercy there was great. Grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. At Calvary. The greatest desire of William Newell's dad was that his son would know the Savior. And the greatest desire of your pastor is that everyone under the sound of my voice would know the Savior. If you've never met him, he loves you with an everlasting love. And the Bible says, whosoever will can come and you can drink of the water of life.